to Nanyog's Book Club, a Discworld podcast. Join us as we read through all 41 of the fantastical and outrageous Discworld novels. I'm Tessa. And I'm Nigel. This is episode 23, Carpe Jugulum. Still a sick fucking title. Before we get to Carpe Jugulum, though, I realized, Nigel, after we stopped recording last week, that I forgot to have you rank the Rincewind novels, which, as you know, is an important part of my podcasting. I love it when people rank lists. So, Nigel, before we get started on this witch's book, rank the Rincewind novels. Least favorite interesting times. Okay. Then The Last Continent, probably. No, hold on. Have I forgotten one? Yes, I have. I'm going to go Eric in between those two. So interesting, going from least favorite to most favorite. Interesting times. Eric. Eric, The Last Continent. Yeah, Um, because like I really disliked a lot of Eric. I thought it was annoying, but I I feel like the cultural insensitivity in... um, Interesting times really just sinks it below Eric. Then I'm going to go Color of Magic, then Light Fantastic, then Sorcery. So Sorcery is your favorite Rincewind novel? Yes. If I had to rank them, mine would probably be pretty close. I feel like I might put The Last Continent over Color of Magic. That would probably be the only two I might switch. But other than that, I think we're pretty much in agreement. That one was one I kind of debated. Ah! Hello, this is a spider on my house. Hello. Oh, no! Hello, little friend. The spider has opinions on our Rincewind riggings. You like my hat? It's a, it's, a, it's a very Terry Pratchett hat. It is a very Terry Pratchett hat. You are really getting into the, into the spirit of this podcast. We should wear hats whenever we record now. I should get a hat. I have so many hats. We could be the Nanny Ogs Book Club Hat Club. We read books while wearing hats. I've had that black hat for seven years, so, like, I, I anticipated this. This very moment. Yeah. <laughs> I think I have a black hat in my closet somewhere. I'll have to, to bring it out. It's too hot for a hat right now, but once it cools down a little bit, the hat club will commence. Let's get to Carpe Juggalum. Published in 1998, Carpe Jugulum is the 23rd Discworld novel and the 6th Witch's novel. It satirizes vampire pop culture while bringing a conclusion, sort of, to the Granny Weatherwax and Linker-centric Witch's books. Just like The Last Continent brought a conclusion to Rincewind as protagonist of the books that he is in, this book brings sort of a conclusion to the type of witch's book we've seen before. Now, we know that Grady Weatherwax will come back, and I know you know this because you've read the Tiffany Aching books. Most of them. The Tiffany Aching books are an extension of the witch's books, so I hesitate to say that this Carpe Jugulum is the end of the witch's books, but there's definitely a shift both in the protagonists and the location because the Tiffany Aching books happen mostly on the chalk, whereas the other witch's books happen mostly in Linker. And also, Tiffany Aching books are YA versus these books, which have been mostly adult. 
So again, this isn't the end of Granny Weatherwax or all of these characters, but it is sort of an ending to this type of witch's book that we've seen before. I don't know if you knew that before reading this. I didn't. And now it's like, we've had the end of the Rincewind books, but they're going to continue on, you said, in a way that I don't know yet. Because no, thankfully, none of our listeners have spoiled it for me yet. And I don't know whether it'll make it into the episode, but prior to this, I was going on about my commitment to ignorance. <laughs> like, I still know nothing about... You have an impressive, impressive commitment to ignorance. I still know nothing about that new Doctor Strange film that came out. For someone who's on Twitter as much as you, I am shocked. You must have a really good blocking game. I've re- I don't, I, but I don't block anyone. I don't block anyone. I don't, I've never muted a word on Twitter. I just, when I see something that, like, like my brain twigs it as that, I just, like, zoop, and just go past it. That's such a great ability. I wish I had that. I am so jealous right now. I hate being spoiled. It is, like, one of my least favorite things in the world. Instagram is a really, really bad one for that, because when I'll go to, like, search someone, and I tap on the search thing, then because it's like, well, I've liked a bunch of stuff to do with this, so they show stuff to do with spoilers, and I just have to be like, ah! Yeah, no, I don't want to see any of that. The worst spoiling thing that ever happened to me was when I was 14, I used to, like, post the books that I got on Instagram, kind of, like, as a precursor to the, like, bookstagram thing now, but I was like, Look at these books I got. And I posted a picture of... I had gotten the first Divergent book, Divergent, and The Fault in Our Stars, and someone spoiled both of them for me in the comments. This random person. Why? Oh, I asked why. why. Someone? I responded to their comment and said, why? Why would you do that? And they said, oh, because you should have read them by now. No. No. Okay. I, I get that, like, if you are talking about something that's kind of old in pop culture on Twitter, like the ending of The Sixth Sense or something like that. Yeah. yeah, I see that as fine because... I've never seen The Sixth Sense, but I know it. Yeah. Right. It's been a long time. A lot of people know about it. If someone is spoiled about it, they really should have watched it by now. But I can't imagine going into someone's comments and being like, this is the ending of The Sixth Sense when they say they haven't seen it before. Like, that's... No. No, that's not okay. It's an interesting thing where it's like, what is the statute of limitations on spoilers? And especially for, like, Discworld, because I don't know any of this stuff, despite having read, like, later books in the series. But I didn't know that the Rinswin books were going to end, kind of. It is interesting, and it's a little messy because of the way that the Discworld works, is that characters, unless they die, and even then sometimes not, they will show up in other books, even just very briefly. So Mm. it's really difficult to say like, oh, well, this character's arc is over when like they do show up in other books. So like, again, like this is not the last we're going to see of Granny Weatherwax, but it is the last book in which it's formulated this way around her and around Nanny Og and Magrat and Agnes and Lanker in this way. So, yeah, I mean, we're going to read the Tiffany Aching books, which are very much a part of this witch series. But they, there is a shift from the Lanker-centric books to the Tiffany Aching books that I definitely feel like the demarcation between the two deserves at least some comment. Yeah. All right, quick summary before we get into our discussion. It's an important day for Lanker. King Varence and Queen Magrat have had a daughter. 
Dignitaries and common folk from all over have been invited for the official naming and celebration, including vampire nobility from nearby Uberwald. But everyone knows you shouldn't invite vampires in. All four witches will have to reunite to drive the invaders out. Can Granny beat her greatest foe yet? All right, what were your first thoughts on this book, Nigel? I mean, I really enjoyed this book, but it's not its not my favorite witches book. Okay. Like, I liked all of the things that were in the book, but as a whole, what I liked about it weighed less than, like, what I liked about, let's say, Lords and Ladies. I do have a question, because as I was reading this book again, especially after reading all of the other ones pretty much in order, I was really struck by how differently structured this book is from previous witches' books. Granny Weatherwax has like maybe two scenes at the beginning of the book, and then we don't really see her again until like halfway through the book. And this book is not short. This book is as long as The Last Continent. My copy is over 400 pages. So the way that this book kind of splits up the main group and like keeps them sort of apart from each other, except for like a couple of scenes in the middle and a couple of scenes at the end, it's very different from the way that Lords and Ladies and Masquerade and Weird Sisters, all of those books, Witches Abroad, all of those books kind of focus more on the witches as a unit while also exploring the individual characteristics of the witches. This one is very much about what happens when Granny Weatherwax removes herself from the situation, at least for a little while. Is that maybe something that impacted your reading of this? Yeah, to a certain extent. This book is about like being vulnerable in ways that characters haven't really experienced before, which is a good part of their arc, especially for Granny Weatherwax, because she's kind of been like indomitable, especially in Lords and Ladies. But whereas this one, like, it's such a profound like threat that she's never experienced before. The, like, like what she says to Nanny Og in the, the cave, that they came to her at her house. And, like, that's a thing that shouldn't have happened. And it's, like, horrifying to her in a way that we haven't really seen her horrified before. Yeah. Like, she's genuinely frightened in this book. Yeah, and so everyone in this book has to act out of character, not necessarily in a bad way. You know, like when you watch something and you're like, well, that's not how they normally behave. Like, everyone has to act counter to their pre-established things or becoming, like, the final part of their arc, like with Agnes and Perdita. Sort of the resolution they come to towards the end of the novel. Like, the moment where Nanny Og slaps Agnes for right intimating that like granny's kind of a coward and has run away and she's like well i I wouldn't normally do that but like my hand is strong from having reared so many sons and daughters and like it needs to be done like we've never seen that side of granny or of nanny sorry and we've never seen that sign of side of granny weatherwax either it's a new sort of demonstration of their friendship and the fact that they've been around so long One of the things that keeps coming up in this book that was introduced in previous books but really gets tested here is the idea of the three, right? The the maiden, the mother, and the crone, or the hag. And 
I just think this is very interesting because we get in this book, The Return of Magrat, as a character. The fact that she's undergone this transition into becoming a mother, Granny sees that as upsetting the roles the three witches have traditionally held because now there's four of them, even though Magrat is queen, everybody still sees her as a witch because she is a witch. And so when Granny takes herself out of the equation, the ways in which Nanny has to take on the hag role, even though she doesn't see herself as a hag, the ways that Magrat now has to take on the mother role the ways that Agnes, you know, is still the maiden, but she's having to do it with these two other witches that are very uncomfortable in the roles that they've been cast in. It, it really stretches all of these characters, I think. Uh, we've mentioned this pretty much every episode that either Rinson or the witches have shown up in it, where it's like the idea of roles or even in like some of the other books, like like ho- the Hogfather, like the, there's a space in tradition or like like a belief that's taken form where they have to have this stuff you know like the bit where uh, they go to granny's house and they realize she's been setting stuff out in threes because like there's meant to be threes she has four cups but one of them is broken uh, as like her perceived at being put out of this triptych i suppose triptych would be the correct word because when you think of like the maiden, the mother, and the other one, you do get this like image in your mind of like these specific roles that are not necessarily connected to actual people. Sometimes they're put into like one person, you know, like the Greek goddess Hecate, you know, like is young and gets old as the day uh, gets older, as the day moves from can to can't. Actually, like, I presume you've seen the Sandman show. Actually, yeah, I saw you tweet about it, right? Yes. Yeah, like, the de- of course. The depiction yes. of the Hecate there, where they're kind of the archetypical triumvirate triple goddess thing, you know, where they go by all the different names, and then they're eventually the kindly ones. One and three and three and one. That's kind of how I envision this role working. Like, the roles that Granny Weatherwax has now moved out of and it's Nanny Og, Magra, and Agnes slash Perdita. That's how I feel like this works, that they're one kind of organism. Setting aside Granny for a moment, which I definitely want to talk about Granny in this book and her vulnerability, but setting aside her for the moment and looking at Nanny, Magra, and Agnes Perdita as the three, I see all three of them as really struggling with their new roles because Nanny is not good at being granny, right? Like she spends most of the book trying to be granny. Like what would granny do? What would she do? And she even says like, I'm not good at this mind stuff. Like I'm not good at headology. That's not my expertise. Like I'm better at, you know, playing the maternal like matriarchal role and pulling all the level levers of my family in order to get things done. Yeah, because it says that she pulls a lot of people's levers, but someone had to have pulled her lever first. And so you get to see like her really trying to be granny for a lot of the book and failing. And eventually she has to get to the point where she's like, I'm not good at being granny, but I do have a lot of practice at being me, right? When she's in the castle at Uberfald. And then we get to see Magrat, who is now a mother, she's queen, and she's trying to figure out how to balance these dual identities of being queen and being a witch, right? 
Like she even says like, oh, well, I don't do that anymore. I'm not part of this. But then as soon as Nanny says Granny's in trouble, she's immediately in, right? Like she immediately comes, snaps back into that role. And so you get to see Magrat really struggling with what is my role in this triumvirate now that I'm in Nanny's place and she's trying to be more like Nanny. And then you get Agnes Perdita and her role hasn't really changed, right? She's still the maiden, but because Magrat is now back in the, in the triptych, in the, in the trio, she starts comparing herself to Magrat. Like, well, Magrat would have done this or Magrat would have done that. She is clearly also struggling with like, how does she be herself in this role instead of living up to all these expectations that the other two witches have always had that she would be like Magrat. So, you know, it's really interesting to see like the push and pull as these people try to like inhabit these roles. Yeah, and it's done it through really, really simple things as well. Like who makes the tea? Who makes the tea? Who mm-hmm. has the biscuit? Who drinks the tea? What kind of like caught me at the end was like after it's all done and Granny finally gets to get like her cup of tea, it's Magrat she asks. So like at the very end there's kind of like one last hurrah for the original the original group where Magrat is the maiden to Nanny's mother and Granny's crone. And they kind of brush it off as like, oh, she's tired and she's just used to like saying Magrat make the tea instead of Agnes make the tea. But I also feel like this is closure on the conflict that we've always had between Granny and Magrat because that was a big part. of the Weird Sisters, Witches Abroad, Lords and Ladies trilogy, is that they were always in the struggle with each other. And now that Magrat has become the mother, she doesn't seem like she feels the need to prove stuff to Granny or to have, like, Granny respect her because she knows that Granny respects her. And so it's not, like, a problem for her to make the tea. Maybe that's what Granny just gets comfort in. The way that things were before? Yeah, in the same way that, like, she relies on um, mighty, mightily oaths, but she frames it as like helping him stand up, and oh, that the ground is yes. <laughs> because there's like she's too proud to ask for help, and so in a situation like that, she just removes herself from the equation. Like she can't appear weak in front of other people or herself. It seems like yeah, like she literally has to go back and confront herself like on the sands with death for her to like have the realization of Esmeralda Weatherwax I finally know who you are what did you think about that whole sequence because I think this book really it's been hinted at before but it delves into Granny's depression much more than previous books have done like there's been stuff in previous books about oh she has to be busy or she like gets into a bad mood this book really digs into the idea that she feels alone and she feels like she does have this depressive tendency if there's nobody else around to beat up she's going to beat up on herself and the idea that she really struggles with like her identity and is she dark and is she light what did you think about how that kind of comes to a climax on the black sand of the i think she's profoundly afraid that she's going to turn out like her great-grandmother or her sister. That moment where she she clings to the answer that the old master, old red-eyes gives about her great-grandmother, like the, 
she's so affected by her own insecurities and like generational trauma that she's left in this position where she doesn't really know who she is as a person because like she has to be better than these other people but she wasn't given a choice like she says in witches abroad and like she's always talked about making a choice right like you just have to make the choices that you think are best but you have to make them and you just have to live with the consequences but i feel like she also deals with a lot of insecurity about like what if they are the wrong choices like what if everything i've done is just leading to me becoming as evil as Lily Weatherwax. She she does have this real insecurity because she knows how powerful she is, that she will turn out evil and that she will just without anyone noticing, including herself, right? Because she understands that evil people don't know that they're evil. And so there's this idea, like Nanny says, she's always watching herself. That actually reminded me a lot of Vimes. The idea of, like, who watches The Watchmen? I watch The Watchmen. Well, who watches you? Me. I watch myself. Right? He says that in in Jingo, I think. It's also like Vimes in the sense that they're both hung up on the actions that, like, an ancestor has done, and that's profoundly affected the way that they act today. Whereas, like, at the end of Jingo, the only compromise they can come to between veterinary and vimes is the rehabilitation of vimes's ancestor and so like granny weatherwax has that too in with her conversation with old red eyes where like the image of her has been rehabilitated in granny's eyes and like the belief that she didn't turn to the dark and so that there's this possibility that maybe granny weatherwax maybe it won't happen to her and that it's not this thing that's genetic and inherent yeah like that she takes relief in that right she says to oats near the end of the book like when he's talking about finding holiness everywhere and she's like well i'm thinking about the sun like you know seeing the sunrise and not knowing whether you get to see like as many of them when you get to her age that it's a thing that you don't take for granted the fact that she's like constantly expects to either become evil and prove all of her insecurities right or that she's going to like be taken from the world before she can do some good it's interesting that the reason why the magpires are such a big threat to her is because the count is able to find his way into her mind via these insecurities in a way that other villains that we've encountered before have not like, not, not even the Queen of the Elves was able to get into her insecurities in this way. She's always so self-assured in the other books, right? We've talked about this before. It, like, borders on narcissism occasionally. But, like, the idea that, like, she thinks that they forgot to invite her to the naming of the baby. Like, that scene is really heartbreaking where she's sitting there trying to pretend that she doesn't care but she thinks that they forgot her. And then she like has this realization of, oh, there's a new three. I don't need to be here anymore. The idea of old age and like realizing that the world has sort of moved past you, even though that's clearly not true for the rest of the book, that that was really a lot. Like when they tell her that, that the magpie stole it and she said, oh, well, I knew that. But then 
like it says, but the pause was too long and too quiet before she said that. She's so insecure in herself that, like, her friend of however many years, probably 70 or 80 plus, Nanny Og, would forget about her. I think that tells you something about Granny and, like, the way that she actually does have depressive tendencies. Because people with depression, I'm one of them, have this tendency to be like, well, nobody cares about me. And, you know, I don't, I'm not worth being cared about. And that's not true. It's clearly not true for Granny, but that's not the way that her mind works. If you had just those scenes and you didn't cut them with the scenes of them at the castle waiting and waiting for as long as possible for Granny, but like the fact that they named the baby after her. I will say, though, that the interlude that happens at the beginning of the book where Granny is waiting around for the invitation and she gets called out for a difficult birth, right? There's been an accident. And she goes over to Slice to to deal with Mr. and Mrs. Ivy and Mrs. Paternoster and like trying to to figure out what needs to be done. And she meets Death. This definitely is a callback to Witches Abroad, right? Where she's she's called down to the stable and there's the baby with the fever and the cow that's also sick. And she has to make a choice between the two of them. Like that seems like a callback to that. But it could be its own short story. Granny and Death meet again. It's like, this is a really, like, fascinating through line about their relationship. And I suppose if you view it through the lens of, like, Granny constantly expecting that she won't live to see the next day, but then still trying to make sure that everyone has a fair life. Which, again, after seeing Sandman... And, like, being reminded of the sound of her wings. It's like, I think this is the fundamental difference between death in the Discworld and death of the Endless. Like, that's the fundamental difference. Where death is more human in this. Even though both of them have the mentality that there's no... There's there's no fairness, there's no justice, there's just them. Even though, like, I, I mean... Uh, someone will probably say, so I'll address it here. Yes, Hub Gadling is an exception. <laughs> yeah, I just think that it's really interesting, too, because I don't know if you remember back when we were talking about equal rights. Oh, that was so long ago. <laughs> so long ago. We discussed how, like, the the idea of, like, women's health care and abortion comes up in equal rights. And... It's been hinted at a few times in the other books, like the way that these witches provide a service. It's kind of a secret, right? Like women come to them for this. This kind of comes up here, right? Because there's this idea that she is, you know, Mrs. Ivy has been kicked by a cow and Mrs. Paternoster wants to put the question of who needs to be saved, the baby or Mrs. Ivy. She wants to put that question to Mr. Ivy and Granny's like, no. He has no place in this decision. This is not a decision that he gets to make. But she takes it upon herself to make that decision. Yeah. And she says, like, why would I, uh, why would I hurt him in that way to make him choose? Yeah. A really fascinating look into the way that Granny views herself as the decision maker, the person who has to judge. But she also sees that role as being a profoundly lonely role that has consequences 
I think Granny is like the opposite of a grenade. Where it's like she's going to try and <laughs> take all of that, like suck all of that hurt that blasts out into herself. That she's going to try and minimize the amount of shrapnel that gets into anyone else, for better or worse, for her own like mental health. But I think it's also like profoundly important given the United, like, you know, the United States decision to overturn Roe versus Wade. You know, like something as simple as this, where he doesn't have a say regardless of whether it'll hurt him to choose, he doesn't have a say because it's not his reproductive health. I mean, ultimately, it should be Mrs. Ivy who makes the decision, but she's not able to in that moment because she's unconscious. Yeah, and so it falls to women who have practiced this type of operation for centuries, both in the real world and in the ram tops, that they're like actually educated to... Because, like, this is a world that hasn't actually got toilets. This is, you know, something that they addressed in one of the footnotes. They haven't moved past the water closet and earth bucket. Right. (laughs) They don't have proper hospitals and, like, properly trained midwives or anything. So these are the only people outside of the mother who are qualified, actually qualified to make this decision. And I I like the conversation with death because death says like there's always uncertainty on the edge of things so even death doesn't know who he's here for but he knows he's here for someone and like the idea that she feels the life stream you know flow past her and death has the decency to leave without a word you know like the idea that this is very sad like this was somebody who this was a a child that they were both really looking forward to and you know it is sad for both of them but the idea that you have to make a choice in that moment yeah it was a great piece of writing on Terry Pratchett's part. It almost functions like a small little story in and of itself, but it does contribute to this whole characterization of vulnerability that we're seeing with Granny in this book. Yeah, because one of the th- one of the like things she does to reason with herself that it's better that she didn't go to the naming was that had she gone to the naming, they would have come there and found no one to help them. And so there would have been even more loss of life, you know, like had the birth gone wrong and both mother and child had died. Let's talk a little bit about some of the other witches characters here. Did you have any thoughts about Nanny's arc in this story beyond the her trying to be the crone and failing? It allows her like in moving away from the role of the mother, it allows her to like come to terms with how much she like values and relies on her large family. Especially when Nanny and Granny are separated in this book. And, like, I think Granny is as close to family as Nanny comes without, like, being one of her many children. Yeah, because, like, there's been many, there's been many Mr. Ogs, right? Yeah, I think six? Is that what they've told us before? Yes, like, six or seven, I think. And, like, they're not important, really. But, like, her blood and the fact that, like, she's essentially reared them on her own. And they're all siblings. Like, they all see each other as siblings and not half-siblings. Like, she has made that environment for them. Yeah. And she has to, like, come to terms with the fact that this this belief shape, which is, I think, that that's what I'm going to go with, belief shape with a hyphen. So if anyone wants to, like, cite me in any scholarly papers or something. <laughs> I think it's the inverse of what a tulpa is. Do you know what a tulpa is? I don't. 
Oh, so a, a tulpa is essentially like a thought or belief that's given form, but this is like this is like a belief which craves form. This is like like the void that's left when something is moved out. I think of belief. That makes total sense to me. This thing that she's part of because she's part of like a structured belief is making her move away from being the matriarch, being the mother, which is what she's essentially like set her life by. Yeah. And we get to meet more of her children in this too. Like Jason and Sean are clearly the characters with the most to do in this book, just like they've been in other books, but we get to meet Darren. Like she has a whole mob of Oggs, right? Ready to go at any given moment. Yeah, quite literally a mob of Oggs. Right, yeah. <laughs> She's like a if we're being spontaneous, that that was that was a pretty great moment. She does this thing that like I it like really resonates with me as a person, the whole like, oh, you don't have to come if you don't want to to like a family <laughs> thing. Uh I don't know whether that's ever happened to you. It has. It has all of the pictures, right, that she has and the way that they like indicate who's her favorite at any given time like the hierarchy of the clan and like you don't have to come if you don't want to but your picture might get moved down right (laughs) that whole family dynamic of like being the favorite or like being out like being not the favorite or even being demoted from being the favorite i think is like terrifying if that's a large part of your family dynamic I don't know if I've said this on the podcast. I've said it elsewhere. But growing up, I'm I'm the oldest of three children, but I had a best friend growing up that like lived with my family for a little while, like was over all the time. You know, is basically like adopted as like the fourth child. And I I've always told people like my father will list like in order who's his like his hierarchy of favorite children at any given time, and even though like I'm like one of three, there are really four slots and it's not necessarily that you're going to be in the top three if you're, you know, blood. <laughs> so it's, yeah. it's, it's definitely a thing I am familiar with. And it's not even like, it's not even something you do that can get you demoted. It's con- something you didn't do. Yeah. I think if we're addressing that, I don't think I'm my uh, mother's favorite. I don't, couldn't give a shit what my father thinks of me, quite frankly. But I don't think I'm my mother's favorite. And I'm kind of okay with that. I Like, now, I'm kind of okay with that. But it's also, like, the same way that I list things, where it's like, well, someone has to be the top and someone has to be the bottom, and that's just how lists work. As much as parents try to say they don't have favorites... They do. All parents have favorites. They do. I'm not saying it's the best for any child's psyche, but... They just do. Like, there are just certain children that click more with their personality than others. I was trying to remember a quote from a poem by Eileen Nequillanon, who's an Irish poet that's on the leaving cert, but I couldn't find it, so I had to go and find my, like, poetry textbook from, oh, Christ, five years ago? But it's called Deaths and Engines, and it was what, I was reminded of it when I was thinking of how Nanny tries to, like, stop the impact of, or how Granny tries to stop the impact of grief. Uh, And it's all about, like, these scenes of death, and, like, it says things like the cold of metal wings is contagious. Soon you will need wings of your own uh, cornered in the angle where time and life like a knife and fork cross and the lifeline in your palm breaks and the curve of an airplane's track meets the straight skyline. But the last verse is what I was trying to remember. 
The images of relief. Hospital pajamas, screens around a bed, a man with a bloody face sitting up in bed, conversing cheerfully through cut lips. These will fail you sometime. You will find yourself alone, accelerating down a blind alley, too late to stop, and know how light your death is. You will be scattered like wreckage, the pieces every one a different shape, will spin and lodge in the hearts of all who love you. And do you connect that more with Nanny or with Granny? With Granny, with like how she's trying okay. to minimize the amount of like pieces that like will have to spin and lodge into people's hearts. And then that just reminded me of, oh, I'm going to have to look up the song because it's one of those Bible songs by the Mountain Goats. This is an impromptu one. Impromptu, Nigel quotes the Mountain Goats. Spontaneous, even. Spontaneous, even. Psalms 42, where it's like trying to become something new. But yeah, each morning new, each day shot through with all the sharp, small shards of shrapnel that seem to burst out of me and you. Like you said, like the way she tries to minimize the damage. Like, you can't live your life without hurt, but you can try your best to minimize that hurt. I think that's what Granny is doing because it's like a tangible reminder that she's not turning to the dark. We also get Magrat back in this book. Magrat's back. Magrat is back. And because like I said in previous episodes, I now that I've read these in order, I really see Weird Sisters, Witches Abroad, and Lords and Ladies as sort of a loose trilogy about Magrat and the way that she has this real character arc. This almost feels like a postscript to that character arc. Like we get to see what happens after she becomes a mother, after she settled into this role as queen. Like it was important, I think, and a lot of her dialogue in this or, like, the descriptions, like, the narration of the parts that are kind of, like, from her perspective are about how she's not just one thing. That, like, she can continue being, like, she can continue being a queen while also being a witch, while also being a mother, and none of those parts individually should impact on the other or hinder her from doing something. And I think it's kind of, like, partly a commentary on the way women are expected to like give up their jobs when they um, have a child where she's like going out in this quest, but she still makes sure to bring all of the stuff she needs to care for young Esme where she's like, you know, she's fulfilling two roles, which as a counterpoint to her being moved to the mother section of like the witch's triad. And I also like how Agnes and Perdita say, like, Magrat's not the same person that she was before she became a mother. She's not a wet blanket anymore because mothers can only be damp. Like, when you become a mother, your worldview drastically changes because now you're responsible for this other person. You can't act in the same ways that you did before because you have to keep this little person alive, right? <laughs> and so, and of course, Agnes, like me, when I have friends who become mothers, becomes a little annoyed because she's like, it's like when people become mothers, everyone else gets a little box next to them that says children. And I, I hate that. Yeah. I hate it so much when that happens. So I'm glad that it didn't completely make Magret unannoying, right? Because she's still kind of annoying in the way that she treats other people because she's become this mother. But it also shows how she has to shift the way that she interacts with other people. 
there's some line where uh, Agnes and Perdita are like, well, I think I can respect Magrat now, where they didn't before. Yeah, because, like, becoming a parent, for the most part, like, obviously, there are people who aren't cut out to be parents when they have children. Either, you know, like, either they're just not able for it, or they're, like, you know, a horrible, horrible person who shouldn't have children. But for the most part, like, it makes you act contrary to the person you originally were. Moving Magrat to the mother from the maiden, it, it, I think it's the most important move. Yeah, Nanny moving from the mother to the other one is slightly different, but she still has her family around. But whereas, like, the maiden now has a child when she's the mother, and she has to act, like, in the best inter- interest of the child and not necessarily herself. Or her husband, because she yeah, or her parents. Yeah, Varence just ha- <laughs> Varence essentially goes on a lad's weekend uh, with the Mac <laughs> McFeagal. Like once he gets a drop of uh, Big Aggie's liquor into him, <laughs> he's just going on a tear. But like, she has to act in the best interest of something which can't defend itself for like a large part of its life, and that changes a person. It requires a different radical form of empathy to like care for a small idiot baby <laughs> that is the perfect description of what happens although i also love that magra which kinda part takes small charge. idiot baby or <laughs> small idiot baby like you said it still emphasizes the way that magra negotiates that that tension between being a mother and being a witch because like agnes and perdita are like, you can't take the baby into danger. Like, what are you talking about? But both Magrat and Nanny, who now are mothers, are like, no, like, you can, you know, be a mother and a witch at the same time. You don't have to, like, abandon all of that to in order to protect a child. I'm trying to, uh, like, I mean, obviously, the, the one of the arguments they make is that the, the, that the Knack McFeagle bring their babies in, but it's a fundamentally different culture. And different body type. <laughs> Yeah, uh, yeah, and different body type. But it is an important distinction that, like, just because you occupy one role in one specific culture doesn't mean you have to, like, follow the roles of this culture. It's a good follow-on from, like, what we were saying about stereotypes and having to perform stereotypes or conforming to stereotypes in interesting times in the last continent where it's like sometimes you are what people perceive you to be like from a distance through a stereotype like sometimes you are whether it's a good or a bad stereotype sometimes you are but then also like sometimes you're performing that for safety or for other reasons and like you don't necessarily have to do that, but you do have the choice to do that. Does that make sense? I just like, I think the heat is getting to my brain. (laughs) No, it totally makes sense. And I like the way in which, like there's a great scene in this book where Nanny and Magrat are alone together and they're sort of talking about motherhood and like bonding over it. And it's a shift in their relationship. Magrat understands Nanny more now and I think Nanny understands Magrat more now and only Nanny and Magrat really understand what it's like to try to balance children with occupation like Agnes and Perdita don't understand it and frankly Granny doesn't understand it because Granny's never had children 
And that doesn't mean that Granny doesn't have her own struggles. It's just not that particular one. To that point, it, it it's like Granny can only occupy one role in yes. this triad. Because, like, when we meet her, she's an old woman. And, pr- like, presumably she was a practicing witch when she was younger, when she knew... Oh, God, the heat really is getting to me. I, for- I temporarily forgot Rudkully's name. <laughs> I was like, what is his name? Yeah. Which his letters get brought up in this, because they're in the box. It's one of the few things that she, like, takes. And especially after, like, their conversation at the end of Lords and Ladies, where they kind of, like come to an understanding and gain solace from like, well, it didn't work out in this universe, but maybe in a different universe, like something happened differently. But like, she clings to this in the sense that like, maybe it makes her happy or maybe she gets comfort from it, which is interesting, actually interesting because Granny's not an overly sentimental person. They also say like the witches' houses are they're like set things that they come as is and the witches are what are, are what changes about them. And so like Granny only has one drawer full of personal belongings. That's all that's actually hers that isn't the house's. Well, and that's what gets Magrat to join, right? Is that Agnes has to tell her she took the box and Magrat's like, oh, that means something really bad is happening. I like that Agnes has no concept of what the box is, and Margaret is, like, making very certain that it's the box that she thinks it is. Right. <laughs> let's, so, we're, like, an hour in, we haven't even talked about the vampires yet, but let's talk about Agnes Perdita just for a little bit before we get to the vampires. So, at the end of Masquerade, we had an interesting conversation about... Is Perdita a different personality? Does Agnes Perdita constitute two personalities in the same body? You weren't so sure at the end of Masquerade. Have you changed your opinion now that you've read Carpe Jugulum? Yeah, it definitely feels like there is... Like, you could definitely make the case that it's a different personality or, like, an alter. Like, and, and as well, I think I'm more in agreement with that they're two separate personalities inhabiting the same body. After reading uh, Rhythm of War by Brandon Sanderson, because, like, there's a character called Shalon who, like, to cope with her trauma, creates different altars that, like, carry out different functions. And so, like, when she becomes overstimulated or, like, her trauma is too much to bear for one, like, another personality can take its place. And, like, that part of that book is, like, uh, a new thing, a new personality is forming. And I think there's a lot of similarities between between this and Rhythm of War. Obviously, I can't say whether that's what Terry Pratchett intended, because he's dead, and I didn't find any writing like about it but like i do know that brandon sanderson did like have an an actual consultant on how to portray borderline personality disorder and dissociative identity disorder that type of thing and that's what it does feel like i don't have any kind of personality disorder so i i'm not going to like 100% say yeah this is it but like it does feel like that it does feel like a lot of the things that people say or like have reported about 
especially dissociative identity disorder with how alters work, where it's like Agnes and Perdita serve two separate functions. They're not just like, you know, like that awful portrayal of like mental health where it's like, oh, it's just a voice in your head and it makes you want to do evil and kill people. That's the worst. Right. I'm glad it's not that. Because most portrayals I've seen of dissociative identity disorder have been like traumatic ones, like you were saying, like there's a trauma and they develop these personalities to cope with it. This portrayal seems to be, Perdita seems to come more from repression than from trauma because Agnes talks about how like when she was a kid, she always talked about this other girl who did all the bad things that she wasn't supposed to do. And that's kind of what Perdita comes from because she always thinks of Perdita as the one that, you know, thinks that things are cool and she's edgy. Perdita is the person who's allowed to do the things that Agnes isn't allowed to do. Yeah, well, also, doesn't Perdita mean, like, little lost one? Does it? I have no idea. Yeah, well, I mean, perdre in French means to lose. But I think, like, the Isha is kind of like, like in Spanish, where it means, like... Yeah, it says, it says lost. Perdita baby name meaning, lost. This, these are, like, the things that she's lost for from having to, like, act or behave a certain way. And especially, like, this book isn't as fatphobic as some of the comments were in Masquerade. But the whole thing of, like, characterizing Agnes and Perdita as being the thin girl inside of the fat girl felt very problematic. And Perdita is very fatphobic towards Agnes. Yeah. Like, she talks about, like, uh, like, oh, I'm inside here, and then there's all this chocolate. And it's something that, like, even Nanny says at one point, right? I didn't like that. I mean, I understood, like, when, like, Lacrimosa calls her fat, that that was supposed to be, like, characterizing Lacrimosa as a villain, because Lacrimosa is not someone we're supposed to emulate. But it would really suck to have an alter who, like was fat phobic towards you like you know like it would it would be terrible yeah well it seems also like a physical manifestation of like internalized fat phobia yes absolutely because yeah agnes isn't very kind to herself either yeah and so like if perdita is meant to be the altar who experiences what agnes has lost out on then i think a large part of her personality should be formed from the reasons why Agnes has lost out on these things. Like, if we're taking that reading, right. then it would make sense why Perdita is so nasty to everyone, especially uh, especially to Agnes. Perdita's also the one who compares Agnes to Magrat the most. Yeah, and she's the one that gets Agnes slapped. She's the one who makes the comment about Granny. And even though it's not Agnes that like that makes the comment, Agnes has to like deal with the consequences of sharing a body with Perdita. It's very interesting the way this book explores this dichotomy, because on the one hand, it doesn't seem like a very pleasant situation to be a part of. But on the other hand, it's what allows her to resist the vampires, right? Because she's of two minds. And so like her mind can't be completely overthrown because when like you know they point out like when agnes goes down perdita is there and when perdita goes down agnes is there and 
I do find the ways in which Agnes and Perdita start to grow past this opposite personalities thing to be interesting because like near the end, especially when Agnes is in escrow and they watch as like the mob starts bringing the children along and Perdita is horrified because she's like, well, they're going to watch the mob kill vampires. Like it'll give them nightmares. And Agnes is the one who says, no, it'll take the nightmares away. I found that to be a very telling exchange that seems to put Agnes forward as actually being more of a witch than Perdita is because Agnes thinks in ways that actually take into account the community and take into account the way that things actually are, right? The second sight type of thing versus Perdita, who really only thinks about herself. That's interesting because Perdita was the nickname she took when she wanted to become a witch. And now that that part of her is less of a witch than like she is now. It almost feels like they grow past those roles in this book. And because as well, having having a character who has, like, who actually has or is written as sort of having, you know, when you, like, when writers are not willing to commit to actually saying this character has, like, dissociative identity disorder, let's say, and they just sort of write a nebulous thing for, like, plot reasons. Having them be the Jekyll and Hyde archetype of complete, like binary polar opposites it's so boring we've seen it before if i wanted that i'd read jekyll and hyde (laughs) yeah exactly i but i think that's what he's doing here to pratchett i mean is taking this trope and then stretching it like because by the end of the book they're definitely not binary opposites anymore towards the end when the the old red eyes is like taking away the vampires to deal with them Perdita, Perdita's response is similar to what Nanny want, to what Nanny and Granny want, which is to take them away and like teach them to be better as one form of punishment. But like Agnes recognizes that the like because she saw the the initial attack by the mob, she saw like you know how the people of Escrow have been treated you know, as animals instead of people, or things instead of people. When Vlad says, oh, you wouldn't let them do this to me, would you? And she's like, oh, for them, I would hold their coats, which is such a fucking badass moment. And we don't usually think of Agnes as being the badass one. Because Perdita is the one who says cool. And, like, there's that whole point where it's like, Magrat, even Magrat wouldn't say cool, except to talk about, like, a slightly colder temperature. There is really an arc of this character of this book or these characters, if you want to think of them as separate, to kind of come to terms with each other a lot more by the end of the book, but also to allow themselves to play different roles than they originally thought they would play. And it's the same sort of role that Carrot and Vimes have, where both of them like learn and emulate from the other while still like having their own personality. Absolutely. God, we've, we're getting so many insights this book. This oh, yeah. I mean, this book, I think, relies more on characterization than any other witch's book that we've read. And a lot of the witch's books are about characterization, about who you are and, you know, what you stand for. 
But this book really wants to dive deep into these characters and put them in situations that we haven't seen before. And I think that that is probably the strength of this book. But of course, we have to talk about vampires in this book. Vampires. The, the, the book is called Carpe Juggalum, Seize the Throat. And so we have to talk about vampires and specifically the Magpiers. Is that how you said it? That's what I thought. The Magpiers. Yeah, that's how I said it. When they're talking about vampires with a Y, I pronounce it vampire. There's some debate about this in Irish because, like, the Irish language doesn't have a letter V. So when you see a word that's in Irish with a V, it's, like, very weird and genuinely actually interesting. Um, there's a podcast called Mother Folklore, which, for those of you who don't know, a folklore is the Irish word for dictionary as well, so that's that's why it's funny. I did not know that. Yeah, but it talks about, like, the introduction of the letter V in certain cases, and so that's why you have, like, vampire, which is, like, V-A-M-P-I, father, or, in some cases. And I wonder whether, because, like, there's some places where I've seen vampire spelled with a Y, and I'm wondering, does that, like, pronunciation that stresses the I or that consonant of a Y, like, like is that a thing? Do they come from the same place? as distinct from, like, just normal vampire. I don't know as much about the linguistics of it. It does kind of seem like Pratchett, by making this distinction between vampire, like the old ways of doing things, and, and vampire with the Y, or vampire with the Y, he is doing, like, a send-up of, like, goth culture in some ways. Like, oh, this is the modern, edgy, you know, type of subculture that you know, that that's sort of emulating the old, but also not like a watered down version in some ways. Yeah, like watering down holy symbols. Exactly. This is the actual Nigel quotes the mountain guts for the episode Ooh. where well, there's two there's two songs that are kind of linked through this. Damn These Vampires from All Eternals deck and Steel Smoke Fish from it was an unreleased track from, I think, Transcendental Youth. But it's like. Vampires is kind of like a, a metaphor for addiction, which is like an interesting modern interpretation because I think, I think I've spoken to you about my hatred for the BBC Dracula. It's horrible. Like one of the most egregious things it does is that it doesn't like do anything interesting with putting Dracula in a modern setting. And especially when it like kind of tiptoes around like the nature of consent sexual consent and also like consenting to let a vampire into a like place uh and then it just does nothing but like vampires as a metaphor for addiction i think is interesting but like the lyrics are like god damn these vampires for what they've done to me god damn these bite marks deep in my arteries that's in damn these vampires uh and then like th that's getting out of addiction and then steel smoked fish is like are reminis reminiscing on being in the depths of addiction and, like, stealing food from supermarkets and stuff and, like, getting away from that. But then that's uh, God bless us all vampires every night. It's a nice character arc. Yeah, I like that because historically vampires... I mean, vampires are metaphorical. Like, they always have been. They've always been stand-ins for... And various... they're queer as fuck. Yeah, they are queer as fuck. I mean, penetration, am I right? So, like, yeah. 
that I mean, that's always been the case. It's also, you know, been a stand in for class. It's been a stand in for the other. You know, there's been all of these different ways that vampires are are used as metaphors for something else. And so, yeah, like the idea of using it, using them as a, a, a metaphor for drug addiction or just addiction in general, I think works because vampires are often portrayed as being addicted to blood. But not these vampires, not the magpiers. What did you think about the Magpiers, specifically the Count as being the main antagonist, but like the whole family acting as like a unit? Yeah, so I feel like it's going to sound like I'm deflecting away from the question, but it's not. Like, what I think the book is at its core is like trying to come to terms with modernity and change. And like, you you know, we saw that with how the characters are reshuffled in the witches trio and like occupying different roles but then also like society as a whole Uberwald into escrow into lanker and how because they're talking to to nanny and she's asking them about what why they're there and uh, which, by the way, this is the official introduction. We've seen like uh, Wee Harry, I believe, in in Ankh-Morpork, who is technically a Nakmak Fiegel. But this is the official introduction of the the Nakmak Fiegel that will become prominent in the Wee Free Men. So it, it's that's really cool, I think. But yeah, she uh, Nanny is talking to the Nakmak Fiegel, and they say like all of the old races are being driven out. And they're being driven out, and, like, the role of the vampire is being, like, driven out from society. You know, with the way that the that Count Magpier is trying to inoculate his children to holy symbols by essentially getting them to, like, microdose on holy symbols and microdose on sunlight. <laughs> and that thing, like, we said... And wine. I, that was such a funny, like send up of the the line in dracula oh no i don't drink wine <laughs> there's so many dracula send-ups in this because there's the reference to the harkers and uh not being able to cross running water and spelling your name backwards right alucard that was all very funny i was like that's also like a thing in castlevania and i was just like i really hope that terry pratchett was aware of castlevania <laughs> point about modernism or modernization i mean even varence at the beginning is like the world is changing you know if clatch sneezes unc morport catches a cold and you know linker has to like join this new economy yeah it's essentially like and this is the thing we've mentioned in in multiple discussions that like kind of steampunk modernization of unc morport you know where it goes you know like it started off with just things like the broken and the mended drum but now you're seeing like innovations with the, that began with Two Flower and his camera. But now you have like steam powered devices and you had the the creation of the Ghana in Men at Arms. And now we're moving away from the Victorian era into kind of like post World War One. Like this feels like the construction of the League of Nations. It does feel like we're moving into kind of like a post war economy throughout the disc, which is fascinating. Because there was so much, like, political and social development that came from being at war. But we haven't necessarily had a Discworld war. 
I mean, Jingo, sort Jingo of. Jingo, sort of. But even that was, like, even that or, like, uh, Interesting Times felt more like a Cold War standoff. You know, the First World War, which occasioned, like, the, the League of Nations being built. Well, I mean, and the thing about steampunk fantasy is that it can fold time periods together in ways that you can't do with, like, a more historical view of fantasy. Because, like, you can be like, Ankh-Morpork is Victorian, but it has the technology of perhaps a post-World War I society. You can mix, like, the politics of one era with the politics of another era in steampunk fantasy in ways that you can't really do... I think, you know, with like historical fiction or something like that. The vampires, the magpires are so fascinating because they see modernization as a way of maintaining control, but they're doing it in a way that's much more subtle and more insidious than the way that their ancestors used to. Like it's the shift between medieval power and disciplinary power that Foucault talks about. It used to be that a monarch maintained control by through violence, right? Through outright, if you disobey me, you're going to get your head cut off or some other more creative punishment, right? But now that we've moved into like more of a capitalist democratic society, we, we still are controlled through violence, but it's a lot more insidious. It's a lot more about social controls than it is about medieval controls. And it's like, I want to like Foucault, but being forced to read Foucault in a university setting has made me like reticent to go back and read some of his works. But like, definitely the concept of like the panopticon and like self-policing and stuff is more a thing now with social controls than like any sort of inherent threat to like life or limb and that's a thing you can only i'm sorry it's called sovereign power it's sovereign power and then disciplinary power ah i yeah i did not read what i was meant to have discipline and punish (laughs) i do a lot with foucault in my dissertation so i'm more aware of some of those theories but yeah the idea that like now we police ourselves instead of needing to be policed because we've been convinced that that is something that is necessary it's getting to Orwellian stages. Uh, I'm not to be like, oh, is this really 1984? You don't even have to go as far as surveillance capitalism, um, which we do. We live in the age of surveillance capitalism. But like from the introduction of this disciplinary power and like the move towards self-policing, we've kind of obviated the need for Big Brother because we're each our own and everyone else's Big Brother. And we behave as if people are watching us even when they're not watching us. That's the panopticon, right? The idea that like, oh, I'm going to wear a certain style of clothing to work because I know that I have to and everyone's going to be watching me, even though maybe nobody actually is watching you. Which brings up again, Granny and Vimes being like, well, I watch me. As like an actual check, like that's an actual check that they're doing to ensure that like the forces of good are able to help people instead of self-policing and the perception of being watched. I don't know, like I think the distinction between 
watching and perceiving watching is an actually interesting distinction, especially in, in the modern world where you can like, everyone is watching you all the goddamn time. Yeah, and to kind of tie this back into Carpe Jugulum. Oh yeah, the book I really we're discussing. Love the line, the book we read. I really love the line where uh, it's kind of what you had said before with Vlad when he's like begging Agnes to not let them the mob kill him, and Perdita's like, I suppose we could work on him, but Agnes thought about escrow and the cues and the children playing while they waited and how evil might come animal sharp in the night or grayly by day on a list. And I love that line, animal sharp in the night, that's the sovereign power, or grayly by day on a list, that's disciplinary power. And so, like, the idea of, yeah, the old vampires were monsters, but they didn't pretend to not be evil. Yes. This is something that's come up before in the Discworld, the idea of, like, they didn't do evil things and then say that it was for your own good which is what the magpires do. It's like that Mark Twain quote where a tiger does like a tiger has no concept of morality. So what it does, what it do, what <laughs> those are all, those are all words. What it does do <laughs> isn't evil. It's guards, guards. That's where this has come up before. Like the dragon doesn't pretend that it's good. It just is. It just is exactly. And it's, there's a, Stephen Fry interview actually with an Irish broadcaster, Gay Byrne. And Gay Byrne, his whole thing was like, he had this program where he would like interview you about like your faith and and, and, and like there's a whole history of the Catholic Church in Ireland. And Gay Byrne was a very Catholic man. But he asked Stephen Fry about this and he was like, yeah, the Greek and Roman gods. They were awful. They were cruel and capricious. And they, like, you know, regularly visited sort of inhumane punishments on mortals. But they didn't pretend to be human. Whereas his, like, the Christian God allows children to, like, get cancer in their eye and die before actually living their, their life and whatever. And, like, that's a whole separate argument that I don't want to get into. Because, like, it's very, very naughty. And I feel like there will be a mob at our door. Because if there's one thing I know about Christians, it's that they don't like people pointing out that they hold the burden of power and prejudice. They don't like being discriminated against by the minorities they've discriminated against. But like that whole thing about not pretending to be human as a distinction from doing things which we perceive as being immoral. Because like the whole thing where they're freaking out when they re- like when they're when they've been weather-waxed. Lacrimosa says, you taught us to see patterns. And one of the things that, like, anthropologically is linked to, like, humans being the way we are is the way that we, like, perceive and recognize patterns. And that's a thing that, like, isn't as innate in animals as it is in humans, that we see, like, patterns in things that don't necessarily have patterns, like images in the clouds. And so that's, like what's wrong with vampires is that they're trying to emulate humans to exert their disciplinary power because like they say society needs vampires to remind them what stakes and garlic are for granny is the one who identifies the the fact that the vampires aren't doing this because of their need for blood 
because she says you wouldn't settle for black puddings, would you? Because what you really drink is power over people. Yeah. And the idea that like they don't need other people to survive, like they could have black puddings or they could feed on animals or, you know, like whatever. But that's not what the point is. The point is, is that they like the power that they have over other people. And that kind of hooks into what we talked about when we talked about Dragon King of Arms, because that's what Vime says was the problem. That's what he says that Dragon King of Arms and vampires have over humans is that you can't really kill them and they just keep records and they just keep looking for power yeah over people and especially because like they say they had a vampire queen before in lanker uh the impaler obviously as a reference to you know vlad the impaler who dracula is based on she was a vampire but she you know didn't feed on humans but then they go the impaler and it's like yeah i didn't say she was a good person but she didn't do this like weird drinking power over people thing because you also get the idea of people need to learn how to recognize evil even when it dresses itself up as good and that's the thing that granny says about like how he's not going she's not going to kill the count permanently or the children because she says, like, when, when he comes back, you deal with him yourself. Teach your children. Don't trust the cannibal just because he's using a knife and fork. And remember that vampires don't go where they're not invited. And at first I thought, this sounds really victim blaming, right? Like, you invited them in, so... But I actually don't think that's what she's saying. I think what she's saying is, is, like, you have the power to reject evil, but you have to learn how to recognize it. Don't just let it happen because it's nice, or it's not really a threat to you. It's a threat to somebody else. Or because it doesn't really seem that painful to just let it happen. Yeah. Is is that a Hannibal Lecter reference? Specifically, like, the cannibal who uses a knife and fork. I mean, I thought about that, too. Yeah, because Hannibal Lecter... Yeah, because his whole thing is he hides behind the air of being, like, a respectable psychiatrist. And he hates rudeness. That's, like, yeah. something he absolutely abhors. He ha- yeah, he hates rudeness and like he kills a person in the orchestra because they can't play their thing there is it the cello or violin i think it's a it's a stringed instrument i don't remember but he kills that person and eats them because they're like disrupting the like harmony of the orchestra the last thing with the vampires i wanted to say was the so the vampires recognize the magpires rec- represent modernity But then we get the old vampire ways when they go to the Überwald castle and they see all of the the signs, right? This way to the castle or don't go near the castle. That's actually the name of the castle, which I thought was funny. It took me so long to like figure out what that was because I stopped reading it. I didn't read on to the explanation. I was like, what does that say? Don't gone ear. Don't gone art. I was like, what? It's all one word. But like the idea of the vampire being a sportsman, I thought found that fascinating. Like the idea that like the old count Magpier, like, yeah, he was evil and yeah, he wanted to suck people's blood and he would attack like women in night dresses and so on. But like they had to have a fair chance, right? And when he died he didn't complain about it. Like you win some, you lose some. He's so happy, you know, like to meet the descendant of the person who like put a stake in his heart. And he's like, 
Oh, it's glad, to, like, when they say, oh, we have, we still have the stake over the fire. He said, well, I'm glad to see the old ways are being preserved. Right. And, and it, how he tells Granny, like, they say we live in modern times, but I find every 50 years or so, they don't seem so modern anymore. There are a lot of, like, references to vampire fiction that I really like. Uh, they talk about Aunt Carmilla, and that's obviously a reference to Jay Sheridan Le Fanu's Carmilla. And I like that it's Aunt, because... Aunt implies like an older relative, and Carmilla came out before Dracula did. Uh, Carmilla came out in 1872, and Dracula came out in 1897. But both of them are written by Irish people, which I'm I'm very proud of. Naturally, you should be. So, like a lot of vampire fiction in its early stages was Irish, but like Carmilla, part of it seems to have inspired Dracula. But what I was going to say was it was based off of your comment about whether granny's speech to the people was victim blamey and that no they have to make the choice to like save people and cast out evil if they want to even if it doesn't necessarily like affect them brings me into the character of oats um who we haven't talked about yet. yes we haven't talked about mightily oats yet and so obviously his whole thing is like he's quaker oats um and like (laughs) Like, you know, because we've talked about Om being, like, evangelical Christian is a, a cr- Christianity and, like, sort of being, like, uh, Mormonism. But I really vibed with his character as, like, a counterpoint and exploration to the character of Father Callahan in Salem's Lot. Have you read Salem's Lot? I have not. So Stephen King's also only... Also a vampire book, right? Yeah, it's his only vampire book. The parish priest in the town the town which is called Salem's Lot is called Father Callahan and he helps out Ben and uh, and the gang because he he's a man of faith but then when they go to oh I'm forgetting the name of the um I'm forgetting the name of the kids uh but they go to the kids house to like rescue him because he's left there on his own and they're confronted with Barlow and Stracker coming in like having been invited in and like crossing that threshold and before like at prior points in the book they've been repelled by father callahan because he's a priest and he's a he's an agent of god and he has the holy symbols and stuff but at this point in the house like he he attempts to make a cross and it fails he loses his faith in the face of this what what seems like like insurmountable evil and he he runs away. He gets on a bus at, like at at the middle point of the novel, and he's never seen again. He's not seen again for like twenty years until he appears as a character in the Dark Tower in the Wolves of the Kala. But he's a coward. He runs away. His symbol of faith fails him. And this is what happens with Mightily Oats, except he learns to find holiness everywhere he sees. And that, like the axe now, the axe now becomes a symbol of faith for him. After he burns the the book of Ohm, it's almost like what you were saying about Lacrimosa and the patterns, right? Like you taught us to see patterns everywhere. Oates kind of comes to the same realization, but with his faith. Yeah, there's faith everywhere. This is probably the most we have seen about the development and the impact of Omnianism since 
small gods. I mean, we've had other characters like Corporal Visit in other books who are Omnian, but we've never seen like a real discussion of how Omnianism developed after the events of small gods until this book. What did you think about the way that Omnianism has gone and the way that Mightily Oates thinks about religion? I think it's another case of having to come to terms with historical trauma and like historical atrocities because like the whole thing is that like this is English Protestantism with the Malleus Maleficarum, the Hammer of Witches, which is a real book that was made by James I of England. And obviously we have that like version in the Discord, which was helped being written by the Magpiers. But like they have to come to terms with the fact that like they tried and burned witches. Granny makes a point that like they didn't burn any witches. Which is a thing, basically, like in the Salem Witch Trials, first of all, most witches weren't burned. They were drowned, mainly, or hanged sometimes. The most, most of them were innocent people. And that's what I thought they were getting at. That, like, they just visited the this, like, horrible, horrible fate, you know? And obviously Granny says, like, this book is a, a book where witches do exist. So, that, like, witches had the good sense to, like, get out of there. But sometimes it's witches who are doing the burning. But still, like, innocent people were put to the torch. Innocent people were burned, hanged, you know, all this stuff because they were afraid of, like, women having power. And this really goes along with the way that Omnianism was portrayed in Small Gods, right? Because before Bretha became the prophet, like, they were torturing and killing a lot of people for just being different or they being tortured not Bretha. faithful. Right, and they torture him on the on the Iron Turtle. I like what you said, though, about like how this really fits into a lot of English Protestantism. But it's also just like the way that Christianity has sort of splintered into all of these different sects and groups, right? I mean, there's like, there's a part where they make fun of Martin Luther, you know, putting his 99 theses on the door. And, uh, you know, like, there's so many schisms within the church, and everything has two sides. And you know, all of these, all these things, it's definitely a send up of like a more modern evangelical type of Christianity Mm. than I think small gods was because it's a lot more bureaucratic notion of Christianity than, than the one that Bratha was introducing to the world. But it is interesting that Mightily Oates has to come to the same conclusion that Bratha did because Bretha was originally the person who also said that faith was everywhere, that it was in other people as well. And Oates has to kind of come to that same realization. One of the other things is, and I thought this would sort of give us a resolution on when exactly small gods takes place, but it doesn't. But they say that, like, Om is the silent god. That's one of the things that, like, they've had no further communication, so they're kind of left to, like, improve their religion if they want to or go along with its tenets or splinter and schism as they see fit that like brother is the only one really who ever spoke to Om, and after that no one has spoken to Om since and that the fact that like brother seems to be the only one before oats and oats is the only one since brother is probably how i should have led that sentence to like come to this realization faith shouldn't be this like iron hammer or it shouldn't be this like rigid set of tenets 
it's very interesting to me the conversation that Oates has with Granny on their trek to Uberwald, because it's this ongoing debate between someone who is not an atheist. She knows that gods exist, but she's decidedly non-religious. And yet she has a better grasp of faith than he does because she understands like where she gets her meaning from. And Oates, who is like Agnes and Perdita, there's the good and bad Oates. He is also of two minds. You know, he he has this real struggle within himself about what it means to follow the letter of the law versus the spirit of the law and that, you know, kind of tension there. But he also, like Agnes Perdita, seems to come to more of an understanding of how those two sides of his personality can interact by the end of the book. And it takes physically burning the Book of Om for him to begin to realize that like, he can draw faith and meaning from a place that isn't a centuries-old text. Cough, cough. Certain religious groups should take note. Which is hilarious because that was basically what Brother said. Like, Brother actually said this religion should change. Like, it, when it doesn't serve people anymore, it should become something else. And yet, the modern Omnians are doing the exact thing that Brother was kind of fighting against. It kind of, like, renders the ending of Small Gods pointless. In a depressing way that, like, all that Brother did, and you, it, like, because you've read these books before, right? So... Maybe you were aware of this, I don't know. Like, when we were reading Small Gods. But when I read at the end, I was like, well, that's, like, a profound, fundamental change to Omnianism. But now this, like, you still have people who believe that. But, like, in more of a sense that, like, nothing has changed. But then again, I suppose you can make the argument that, like, some people are really, really clinging to, like, traditional Christianity... Whereas, like, the Pope is sort of like, yeah, dogs can get into heaven. (laughs) I mean, at least they're not burning people anymore, right? That seems to be, like, the thing with Omnianism. Yeah. I I actually think that that's the point, though, is that, like, like with Christianity, where you can get things out of the Bible, right? There are a lot of, like, beautiful and poignant things in the Bible but the actions of Christians everywhere have made that sort of pointless. I feel like that's also kind of the point that this book is making is that like brother had this idea of a religion that actually served people. Yeah. You know, the descendants of those people have taken it and made it kind of meaningless, which is the point granny brings up. Yeah. I do like that. Like taking the doxology and like making your own, a, like interpretation of it and just be like yeah this is what it says not to sound like one of those atheists like ricky gervais or whatever who are like oh boohoo christianity like i don't agree with uh, christianity as a whole but like if you can derive some meaning from it for good sure before we get to cameos i do want to bring up uh, a plot point that i thought maybe you would think was interesting i want to know what you thought about the phoenix in this book and how that interacted with all these ideas we've been talking about I was at first very confused why the phoenix was in this book. And then it slowly began to, like, make sense to me. The way things function in a society and, like, how you are based on, like, nature versus nurture. This is what I got from it anyway. I don't know about you because I think there's a lot to be read into this. But, like, the fact that there's a second phoenix, you know, and it looks like, what is it, like a wow something? Wow hawk. 
Lanker Wowhawk. Yeah, it looks like the Lanker Wowhawk because that's how it was raised, but then when it's needed to be a phoenix, it will look like a phoenix. And I think that's an important part of identity building and like like how this is the true introduction of the Knack McFeagle. You know, where we've had people who are technically Knack McFeagle before, but like this is the actual Knack McFeagle. Or other people who've been raised in certain contexts, and so they're like the way they've been raised. Like the whole Discworld thing like is about person. Yeah, exactly. The whole thing is about personal growth and change. And Car is the character who's probably the most cogent example of this. And he goes on to like change and improve the watch and Vimes by extension. And he he puts the words into Dorfel's mind. You know, and so Dorfel is now like a living, sentient creature. It's a nice parallel as well with Hodges Ah, um, because like <laughs> he he's immune to the vampires because his mind is so full of birds. Because he set his entire like personality and identity around being like the person who's in charge of taking care of birds. That scene where Oates is like, do you understand what's going on here? And Hodges R is just like, no, I'm not qualified to understand what's going on here. Other people are. I'm going to stick to what I'm qualified to, to do. And That's I, me I when someone talks scene. to me about cars. I'm like, this is not me. Whoop. Royalty does this and I do this. This is what I'm best at. This is my identity. I mean, we've seen it, like you've said, with like Moto and Carrot and, and other people as well. It's fascinating to me, but like, yeah, the Phoenix very much seems like an exploration of the intersection between form and function. Because what is it that Granny says to Oates, even allegories need to fly sometimes? Yeah, even allegories need to live. Oh, allegories need to live, yeah. Oh, actually, I can use a word I learned today, the Hallocline. The Hallocline is a, the border between like fresh and salt water in places like uh, caves inside of icebergs. And it's this, like, film you can see. You can actually see this thing. And when you go through from fresh into salt or salt into fresh, you're, like, as you're going through the halocline, your vision becomes blurry. And then once you, like, go into the next, then your vision snaps back into focus. And you can see, like, the halocline above or below you. But that's what I think this is. The difference between form and function. Uh, and, like, how the phoenix moves between them. It goes through the halocline. There's also, to to kind of bring it back to our discussion about modernity, the Magpiers and the New Count are much more interested in function than they are form. And so that is not going to work either, right? Like Oates is much more interested in form at the beginning than he is function. And he learns how to incorporate function into his faith. The Count is much more interested in function than he is form. Like anything that doesn't serve a function is useless, right? Like all the old stupid races that he's driving out of Uberwald, including the Phoenix. And so the Phoenix like represents this like perfect amalgamation of the two, right? Because even though it, it does serve a function, right? It does burn the vampires. It does fight them. It also serves form. Like it's beautiful and it's allegorical. And like Granny talks about watching it, you know, dance in the sky. And, and so does the Count, the old Count, old Red Eyes. You know, like the idea that it's very beautiful and that's what it is. It serves both. It's like the perfect amalgamation of the two. And especially like the Phoenix is obviously like a 
massive metaphor for like change and rebirth you know by its very nature but like one of the things that like people don't really talk about as much with phoenixes and it's something that's brought up in this where it's like the phoenix is immune to the fire that it doesn't damage it because why would it you can have such a drastic change without like hurting yourself or others or because granny and oats are able to like cling on to the phoenix and they're not hurt and uh oats says that oh well it must be magic fire and then granny says that like even allegories have to live that it's not magic necessarily it's just like a thing that's part of this bird I thought that was a really cool image, by the way, of like a bird, this a firebird the size of a house and these two people in the middle of it who aren't being burned. Uh, that was a wonderful bit of imagery. And it feels you can almost read it in a religious sense, because isn't there like a quote from the Bible where Jesus says that, like, you know, do, you know, don't fear like in the deepest oceans, I'd be there. You can walk through like raging fires or whatever and i'll protect you uh, like in the darkest night fear no evil that type thing i remember something like that in mass because i did attend mass i was raised i was raised christian i understand yeah <laughs> so was i well i feel like listeners might not know that about me for how like vehemently anti-christian i am we're both very like i i almost said lapsed but it's more than that it's more like aggressive <laughs> about our, our disdain for christianity Anyway, we've aggressively schismed ourselves from the <laughs> church. So just really quickly before we finish, uh, I do want to talk about cameos and just like note a couple of things that came up that will be important later. So we do get Casa Nunda is in one scene. He is turned to yeah. highway robbery. I don't know if he's like leaving Lanker. Wasn't he doing highway robbery before? And that's how he ends up like in the carriage with the wizards from Unseen University. Yeah. So he's back at it. I guess. <laughs> I like the stepladder to get down from his horse. We also get a reference to General Tacticus because Sean is reading his book when trying to figure out how to invade the Linker Castle and take it back from the invaders. I love that. Any chance to read more of General Tacticus? Like, I really wish that that's a real world thing that they did. You know, like, Nanny Og's cookbook is a thing now. I would have loved a copy of General Tacticus's book because it's so funny. Like, because the bit that Jason is reading and then gives up is if you're an army besieging an enemy that's inside a, like, really well-defended interior position, the advice is endeavor to be the army that's on the inside. Yes, which fits into everything we've heard about him so far from Bimes. There's also a reference to Jelly Baby. I don't know if you noticed that. Uh, it's one of the yeah. symbols that the Count uses. Jelly Baby Water Cult. Yeah, the double snake symbol of the Jellababian water cult. So that's that's a fun reference there. We also get to see Big Jim Beef and the Troll Bridge. Once again, you know, I like I like how he doesn't know how to carve a, the official crest, so he makes a duck stamp to stamp on like people's official pieces of paper coming in. Love Big Jim Beef. We also, of course, get Grebo, who does not transform into sexy Grebo, ugly sexy Grebo. In this, he's just regular Grebo. I would like to directly address Lozzie. <laughs> <laughs> at me and English man on Twitter, who tagged both Tessa and I in a Pop Sugar article called The Appeal of the Dirtbag Boy Look. And then, as part of the thread, included, it's not quite ugly sexy, but it's in the continuum. And I just responded, no. And I would like to respond, 
Yes. <laughs> I'm so glad there's not a, tra- a transformation because then I'd have to listen to Lozzie and you talk about how ugly sexy is a thing. It is a thing. I'm sorry, Tessie, you're my friend and I love you very much, but ugly sexy is a thing. I It's a bridge too far for me. Well, we don't have to argue about it because he doesn't transform in this book. Although I did love the scene where a vampire uses him as a pillow in the coffin and he fucks the vampire up and then goes back to sleep. Perfect cat content. We also get to see our first uh, our first sight of Uberwald, which is clearly a Transylvania metaphor because all of the monsters come from Uberwald. I mean, Angua also comes from Uberwald. We've talked about this. Her name is uh, Delphine Angua von Uberwald. That's her full name. Yeah. And we reference like the werewolves in the woods, right? And the tense interactions between vampires and werewolves. So we get to see like the castle, which is clearly based on Dracula's castle. So this is a new area of the Discworld that we just haven't seen before, although it's been referenced quite a lot. And it, it also seems to like kind of reference the Black Forest in Germany, just from like Uberwald, because Uber is a German word. And they talk about one of the footnotes spelling it correctly with the diacritics. And Wald, yes. obviously, like Schwarzwald. I like that. But it, it, it does feel like it's leaning into that slight terror of like the unknowns of uh, middle to eastern Europe. Where it's like you go into a forest, you get fucked up by an unimaginable horror, you leave, you rate it three stars on TripAdvisor. <laughs> I mean, I would love for TripAdvisor to be part of the go- Don't Go Near the Castle now. Because they were building a gift shop and a fun, yeah. and fun house. So... They should be on TripAdvisor, too. I get it. I loved Igor. We've seen Igors before, but this is the first time that we've really gotten one that participated in the action. He's a classic Igor. He does surgery on himself. He has the lisp and the limp, and he's very, very concerned with the aesthetic of the castle. I thought it was so fucking funny because, like, the magpires were like, where is he... Varence has put in all this nice lighting and, and Igor has just replaced it all with these dribbly candles. Where is he getting all these dribbly candles from? <laughs> yeah, I loved Scraps, the dog. I was so sad oh. when he died the first time. Like the first time when I read this and I knew he, I didn't know he was coming back. It was devastating. I didn't know he was coming back either. But it's also like, sometimes you can tell when characters aren't going to die in Discworld, but like, I thought Scraps was dead. I thought Granny was dead at the end of Lords and Ladies. I thought Magrat was going to die when she was cornered in the in the room when the vampires were trying to get in. I thought Ma- uh, Magrat was actually going to die. She did feel in danger. Real peril. Real peril. I think that kind of comes back to like the point I made about the difference between Pratchett and Gaiman. But like that's not the type of writer that Pratchett is. Right. Like he wouldn't kill off Magrat just for the sake of it. Just be like, well, these things happen. Whereas, like, I think maybe Gaiman would. Well, it's a different tone. Gaiman would kill Magrat and... Yeah, it's a different tone. He would kill Magrat and have little the little baby just be there and, ha- like, have it raised by, let's say, Granny and Nanny or whatever. But, like, he, w- he would kill Magrat. Uh, which I'm glad that Magrat is still alive. Yes. Yeah, I mean, Terry Pratchett definitely likes coming back to a status quo at the end. It's not the same status quo at the be- from the beginning, right? Things have changed, but it's not usually devastating. He does like to kill off characters that I've become attached to. Cough, cough, men at arms. Yes, he will do that. There are character deaths, so it's not like everybody is safe. 
they're, they're not bulletproof in, the, in that way. The only other thing I wanted to mention before we stopped was there is a reference to Angua's father, who we've heard referenced in this in the Discworld before. Because if you remember when Angua goes into the bar in Men at Arms and she gets cornered by a, a boogeyman and he says, I hear the Baron is really angry at you, like for becoming a watchman. We also mm. get a reference to the Baron here in Carpe Jugulum because Vlad actually says, well, the Baron seems all right when he's talking about werewolves, but er- all the rest of them just, you know, they, they're not ambitious like the Baron is. Yeah. There's kind of that tease for perhaps more of Angua's family drama. I'd like to see that more. Gradually, like, as we're getting, we're now, like, halfway through the series, pretty much. It's, like, rapidly running out of chances for things that I want out of the series to, like, uh, happen. You know what I mean? But I can guarantee you that they will happen. (laughs) Oh, good. I mean, like, I I guess I, I don't know all the things you're expecting, but, like, there's still plenty of time. One of the things I want is a, a Dibbler POV book. <laughs> well, I'm not sure that'll happen, but we'll see. Oh. So before I get into the end of the episode, since I do think that this is kind of the end of the witch branch as we know it, although it will continue with the Tiffany Aching books, if you had to rank the witch's books so far, excluding the Tiffany Aching books, how would you rank them? So least favorite to favorite. Equal Rights, Masquerade, despite the Phantom of the Opera stuff. I liked some of the stuff in other books more. Then I'm going to go Witches Abroad. I like the setting in Genua and conflict between Esme and Lily. Then I'm going to go... It's a toss-up between Weird Sisters and Carpe Jogulum. But I'm going to go Weird Sisters, just because I think the conflict between vampires and witches is more interesting than like Shakespeare slightly (laughs) so then Carpe Jogulum and then Lords and Ladies because among other things it's the only book in the Discworld that has actually terrified me I think I agree with you that Lords and Ladies is probably the best witches book I do have a real soft spot for Carpe Jogulum because of the way that the characters are really tested in that book but yeah, I think I would for the most part agree with your ranking. It's funny how in sync we are. Damn it, we should have a different person on the podcast of a wildly different <laughs> If you have a t- listeners, if you have a different ranking of either the Rincewind books or the Granny Weatherwax centric witch books, please let us know. Please tweet at us and or, or send us an email and let us know your own personal ranking and we'll we'll discuss it on the pod. Like, I'm sure there is someone out there who listens to this show who will, like, actually do that. Oh, yeah, I hope so. I hope so. I mean, if nothing else, we can always re- we can always uh, rely on Lily and Weatherwax on, on the Reddit. There are more death sightings in this book than I think any other book except for the death books. Like, there is a lot of death in this book, which I thought was really f- interesting because, it, like you said, it highlights a lot of these relationships that he has especially with granny weatherwax so the first death sighting that we get is when the vampire the magpiers excuse me kill the highwaymen and death shows up and the highwayman tries to rob death but he's there to, yeah. to take him so there's that 
There's also the scene where Granny, like we mentioned before, where Granny is uh, working on Mrs. Ivy and he shows up and takes the baby. And we have the one where he is talking to Granny Weatherwax in the desert. So we get a return of the desert and he's telling Granny to choose. We also very hilariously, I thought, get death following Granny Weatherwax and Oats through their journey to Ubervault. I thought that was hilarious because you see him briefly in one scene, just very, very briefly, where it's like Oates is looking and he thinks he can see a horse and rider through the rain and he can hear a horse's footbeats. But then later when he sees him again, he throws the the stone at him and like runs off with Granny and Death is like, it's not even like I said anything, (laughs) which I thought was very funny. As a like confrontation of sort of the biblical image of a ho- of a rider on a white horse, I think that's very funny. <laughs> we get one sighting of the death of rats, and that's when the o- old red eyes. I I find it easier to call him that than to call him the count because there's two the counts in this book. Yeah, also old red eyes sounds like like a Appalachian like folk figure. And I think it's supposed to be a direct link to old blue eyes, right? The Sinatra reference and so he's supposed to oh be i hadn't even sleek. thought of that yeah, yeah he's definitely like kind of a crooner that that's the way he like operates oh absolutely but when he's being resurrected by igor he does kill a rat and so we see the death of rats show up for that rat very briefly there are two sort references in this yes so the first one is uh, the hero in sort or wherever it was that was completely invincible except for his heel and someone stuck a spear in it and killed him. So clearly a reference to the Trojan War and Achilles. Like, because I'm thinking about this now, because like sort seems to be Greece, but Aphivi also seems to be Greece. I think they take turns being Greece and Troy. Yeah, but it's also like they seem to be different parts of Greece where like Aphivi is very much like the Athenian democratic way of, of Greece, or like kind of modern ancient Greece, whereas like Sort seems to be kind of the older... Because like there's so much time in Greece, like in, in ancient Greek history. Like it, w- it existed for such a long time that like the period that Homer was writing about in the Iliad and Odyssey, or not, not writing about it, you know, like the oral tradition or whatever. But like, there's such a large gap in between the bit he was writing about and like when he was actually writing that it's kind of like shocking. Like there's, there's Greek dark ages where there was like no knowledge for fucking ages. And so like, I think they're kind of emblematic of like two distinct time periods of Greece, if not like the two aspects of Greece, the democratic and like belligerent side, let's say. So the other reference is Hajazar, Hajazar, who is trying to explain to Oates and Granny what happened in the meantime while Granny was was unconscious. And it says that he would be a really good storyteller, except for he always focused on birds. So if he was talking about the Sortian War, he would be talking more about the birds that were around. And eventually men in armor would feature in it only because birds had perched on them. I would love to read a story like that, genuinely that style of storytelling where things are like you focus on something that seems quotes mundane 
but it actually like reveals a lot more of the story going on in the background. Yeah. The first footnote in this book happens on my page 12. It's when they're introducing the vamp- the idea of vampires in the Discworld. There are many kinds of vampires. Indeed, it is said that there are as many kinds of vampires as there are types of disease. Footnote. Which presumably means that some are virulent and deadly, and others just make you walk in a funny way and avoid fruit. I thought that that was a really funny section where they're introducing the vampires because it, it really stresses the idea that different cultures have different views of vampires and different ways like vampires as a concept is almost universal like it's the idea of the vampire shows up in a lot of different cultures not just european cultures but they're all sort of different from each other yeah and i think this is something that's like hinted at throughout with like the difference between Naniog and Magrat's version of the magpie song. Yeah, like the three for a funeral, three for a girl, all that. Because, like, I heard both of those growing up, and I was like, well, which is the real one? Like, this is genuinely a thing that I had, where I was like, Fascinating. I, heard both I never of them. had heard this song before. Really? I thought it was just a Discworld invention. I had no idea it was no. real. Well, I don't know, maybe that's, like, a cultural thing where it's like, I grew up in the middle of, like, rural Ireland, where like a lot of kind of old ways are still knocking around. So maybe that's why, I don't know. I don't want to like mystify my past or anything, but like, yeah. What was your favorite footnote? I'm going to have to be honest with this book. The selection of footnotes isn't great. It's not. I was thinking that too. I had a hard time coming up with one. Yeah. For like a book that has more death sightings than most any book other than like, death's main books it like has a paucity of like actual good footnotes so i'm gonna go with the one i guess where they're talking about like the progression of things and sometimes they like call the witches and the footnote is then sometimes of course to say please stop doing it (laughs) that was also my favorite footnote yeah so we we are in agreement it's probably the best one like sometimes just to say please stop doing it yeah, and this is a thing that, like, is even, like, in the family of witches. One of the things that, like, it hasn't come up and it's not something that made me laugh or made me think, really. But the description of Jason Og as, and I highlighted this, hold on. Jason Og was very big and very strong and therefore not a violent man because he did not need to be. Where he, like, his whole job is to stop fights is to just pick people up and hold them away from one another. He doesn't use his strength to, like, go in and start beating the shit out of people. Yeah, because he doesn't need to. Yeah, and I, I loved that. That was really great. It's only small people that uh, have to do that type of thing. Only small people that need violence. That's the Knack Mac Fiegel. <laughs> Something that made me laugh. Yeah, so it's... um. Oh, really? She said there weren't enough straps and buckles. Still, she is inventive. Just say the word. Say the word, Perdita prompted. That'd be two less of them. Uh, no, said Agnes. Ah, Marl Caradus from the Fat Girl. Who are, who are they? Oh, we brought some of the clan in on the carrots. They can make themselves useful, Father said. Oh, their relatives? Granny Weatherwax would have said yes, Perdita whispered. Vlad coughed gently. By blood, he said. Yes, in a way, but subservient. Do come this way. He gently took her arm and led her up, back up the passage, treading heavily on Crimson's twitching hand as he did so. You mean vampire vampirism is like pyramid selling? 
said Agnes. She was alone with Vlad. Admittedly, this is the edge over being alone with the other two. But somehow at a time like this, it seemed vital to hear the sound of her own voice, if only to remind herself that she was alive. I'm sorry, said Vlad. Who sells pyramids? No, I mean, you bite five necks and in two months' time, you get a lake of blood of your very own. I love that. <laughs> like, the vampirism is a pyramid scheme. It also really fit into Terry Pratchett's observation that vampires aren't family-oriented because they're raising competition. That and the pyramid scheme, I thought, worked together really well. And it's also like, I like that as a metaphor, just like uh, like vampirism is a pyramid scheme. And also, I don't know, I don't remember, I don't remember doing the episode. In our episode on pyramids, did we even talk about pyramid schemes? I think pyramids... I don't think we did. Because, like, I mean, that whole, oh, what are the suns called? The ones who get, like, doubled in time and one becomes flat, and they're called A and B. But, like, that, like, their whole business is a pyramid scheme. Why didn't we say that? Right, because they can't pay everybody. Yeah. yeah. I don't remember if we... Maybe we did actually talk about that. I don't remember. God, I hope we were clever enough to think of pyramid schemes. I mean, I think pyramid schemes are so funny. The thing that made me laugh was, first of all, the whole Mar- es- Esmeralda Margaret note spelling... Yeah. ...was hilarious. But I love the argument they get into afterwards about whether they can change it or not. We can change it, can't we? said King Varence. Where's the royal historian? Sean coughed. It's not Wednesday evening, and I'll have to go and fetch the proper hat, sire. Can we change it or not, man? Uh, it's been said, sire, at the official time. I think it's her name now, but I'll need to go and look it up. Everyone heard it, sire. No, you can't change it, said Nanny, who, as the royal historian's mum, took it as read that she knew more than the royal historian. Look at old Moo Cow Porchick over in Slice, for one. What happened to him then, said the king sharply. His full name is James. What the what the hell's that cow doing in here, Porchick, said Magrat. And the fact that Moo Cow Porchick's name comes up several more times in the book, every time I saw it made me laugh. But then also the, well, we once had a king called, my God, he's heavy the first. And then uh, like the idea that Lanker people choose names based on sound rather than meeting. So Yodel, Lightly, and Total Biscuit are names that people have. All of that, very funny. No notes. Total Biscuit. I'm going to say that. I'm going to say that more often. What's something that made you think? Yeah, it's, it's when uh, Nanny and them are talking about objecting to Omnianism. But you've never objected to the gloomy brethren, Nanny, or to the wanderers. And the balancing monks come through here all the time. But none of them object to me said nanny and i think that's yes like that's such an important point in today's society where people are like stripping back the rights of marginalized groups like like women with the overturning of roe versus wade and like i uh, the state of trans healthcare in america is abysmal in ireland or just being trans like there's actively anti-trans legislation happening yeah like in ireland now they've banned trans women from competing in sport in certain sports like rugby like uh, like on the women's team they've banned them from competing there and like people are trying to are actively trying to repeal the gender recognition act and like obviously there are other countries in the world other than ireland and america but those are the two that we're in uh, and those are the ones that right. we know more about. Like, I mean, I'm trans, Sam is trans. So, like, we have that lived experience of you, like, being Sam's partner. Right. And, you know, being afraid for her all the time. Yeah, exactly. Because it's like, I don't know what, what it is about trans people that seems to, like, inspire such virulent hatred. 
like like I don't understand the like visceral hatred and disgust people feel when they see us in the street that like inspires them to do hate crimes. Right. I don't understand, and because like trans people have to live their whole lives in fear. I don't. I don't. I don't know. It's just. It's upsetting. Yeah, and that I think goes back to your point about I don't object to religions that don't object to me. Yeah. And I think that's our both of our problems with Christianity specifically. So the thing that made me think, and it kind of goes along with what you're saying, and, and a lot of stuff in this book made me think, I especially liked the conversations between Granny and Oates on religion. I thought that was very interesting. But the thing that kind of goes with what you were saying is she's thinking about her life and she says choices. It was always choices. There'd been that man down in Spackle, the one who'd killed those kids. The people sent for her and she looked at him and had seen the guilt writhing in his head like a red worm. And then she'd taken them to his farm and showed them where to dig. And he'd thrown himself down and asked her for mercy because he said he'd been drunk and it had all been done in alcohol. Her words came back to her. She'd said in sobriety, end it in hemp. And they dragged him off and hanged him in a hemping, hempen rope. And she'd gone to watch because she owed him that much. And he'd cursed, which was unfair because hanging is a clean death, or at least cleaner than the one he would have gotten if the villagers had dared to fight her. And she'd seen the shadow of death come for him. And then behind death came the smaller, brighter figures. And then... The, in the darkness, the rocking chair creaked as it thundered back and forth. The villagers said justice had been done, and then she lost patience and told them to go home then and pray to whatever gods they believed in that it was never done to them. The smug mask of virtue triumphant could almost be as horrible as the face of wickedness revealed. First of all, it's a foreshadowing of what happens at the end of the book, right? Because she, it's what happens when she shows mercy to the Count and Vlad and Lacrimosa. Yeah, instead of justice. Right. But here she's doing justice, but she understands that it's the right thing to do. And she makes the choice between mercy and justice here. But she doesn't feel smug about it. Like the idea that she doesn't see herself as, you know, virtue triumphant. Right. And she says that they should go home and pray that it's never done to them. That the idea that justice, if you really want justice, you're asking for a whole lot more than you think that you are like the black and white of justice doesn't account for the gray points and so i thought that that was very interesting the smug face of virtue triumphant is almost as bad as the face of wickedness revealed because that goes back into what we were talking about about religion right the idea that the worst crimes are done by people who think that they're doing the right thing who say like it's in the name of the lord or you know, religion or what's right or whatever. And that was a really good counterpoint to what she says about evil later when she says, don't invite the cannibal in if he's using a knife and fork. I think it's fascinating that she sees herself as the adjudicator because she has to be, but she doesn't think that she's better than everyone else because of it. Like she sees herself as subject to the same laws. Yeah. That's a downer to end the episode on. (laughs) Something to chew over in your mind. Oops. But you'll be happy about this. Me or the listeners? Oh, well, hopefully the listeners, but I know you'll be happy about this. Oh. In the next episode, we return to Uberwald when Commander Vimes is sent there on a diplomatic mission in the Fifth Elephant. Ooh. So more Uberwald and the Watch next episode. Next episode. Next episode. Where can people find you online and on their headphones, Nigel? You can find my 
shows uh, in your ears. They're hyperfixations. The only one other than this reel that's still going. We released uh, an episode where Ali and I go f- like we just fully lose our minds talking about Morbius. <laughs> I'm excited. I haven't listened to it yet. Yeah, the episode before that on the chalet school, I learned that Yugoslavia wasn't a thing, and I had a bit of a, a, a breakdown. We have some exciting episodes coming up. We're recording with a a, a very a very special, well known guest next week, so that should be coming out soon ish. So that's something to look forward to. And you can find me on Twitter, where I'm currently continuing my countdown until Avatar 2. It's currently 125 days until Avatar 2 comes out. And I've been tweeting about um, Irish politics, the fact that England may be experiencing a potato famine. Well, 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 how the turntables. You can find me on Twitter and Letterboxd at Suela Tessa. Suela is spelled S-W-E-H-L-A. And you can also find me on my other podcast, Monkey Off My Backlog. That's at Monkey Backlog. You can find this podcast on Twitter at Nanny's Book Club and on Instagram at Nanny Ogg's Book Club. Please rate, review, and subscribe on iTunes. Follow us on Spotify, Stitcher, Amazon Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Read us out, Nigel. The eagle swooped on into the bowl of Lanker. The long light glowed on the lake and on the big V-shaped ripple made up of many small V-shaped ripples that arrowed through the water toward the unsuspecting island. The voices echoed around the mountains. Sea otter, Taggett, Jins McGreely, we free men, Knack McFeagle. The eagle passed overhead, dropping fast and steep now. It drifted silently over the shadowy woods, curved over the trees, and landed suddenly on a branch beside a cottage in a clearing. Granny Weatherwax awoke. Her body did not move, but her gaze darted this way and that, sharply, and in the gloom her nose looked more hooked than normal. Then she settled back and her shoulders lost the hunched, perching look. After a while she stood up, stretched and went to the doorway. The night felt warmer. She could feel greenness in the ground, uncoiling. The year was past the edge, heading away from the dark. Of course, dark would come again, but that was in the nature of the world. Many things were beginning. When at last she'd shut the door, she lit the fire, took the box of candles out of the dresser and lit every single one, and put them around the room in saucers. On the pool, the table of water that accumulated in the last two days rippled and rose gently in the middle. Then a drip soared upward and plopped into the damp patch in the ceiling. Granny wound up the clock and started the pendulum. She left the room for a moment and came back with a square of cardboard attached to a loop of elderly string. She sat down in the rocking chair and reached down into the hearth for a stick of half-burned wood. The clock ticked as she wrote. Another drop left the table and plunged toward the ceiling. Then Granny Weatherwax hung the sign around her neck and lay back with a smile. The chair rocked for a while, a counterpoint to the dripping of the table and the ticking of the clock, and then slowed. The sign read, I still ain't dead. The light faded from can to can't. After a few minutes, an owl woke up in a nearby tree and sailed out over the forests. The end.